man who wanted a short introduction so he'd have more time to talk. <laughs> I like that. Uh, and I think it was probably just his attempt not to sound too humble. Uh, Bruce Bickle uh, practices law in Fresno, California. Uh, now, we, is this for Fresno or law or anyway? Uh, and uh, he's written like 40 books with uh, President Gady. I, I, I don't. I, I don't. I don't, I don't think, I think you lied. I don't think you really did that. But no, sir. Uh, he's a man of tremendous energy. He's president of our uh, parents' council here at Westmont College, but who wants to be known this morning mainly as uh, Matt's dad. So would you welcome Bruce Bickle? <clears throat> and I want to. Uh, I want to say a prayer. And pray, Lord, that you would bless our brother. Uh, Lord, we thank you for Bruce uh, for his humor, his passion for you for the gifts you've given him to speak and to write, and, Lord, for the way he's brought leadership to this, this college. Lord, give him joy and power as he speaks to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks. Well, let me clarify. I have written 40 books with a guy named Stan, but it isn't your president. I know how long it takes Stan, this Stan to write a book, and uh, he couldn't turn them out that fast. I write far too shallow for uh, President uh, Gady. Um, well, I am impressed with the number of uh, students uh, that are here today. I mean, I know you're a week away from finals. I know you aren't here to hear me. I'm not that egotistical. Um, I know that for some of you, ch chapel worship is a normal part of your life. And uh, so for you, you know, you are compelled to be here by your love for God. For others of you, you have maxed out on your chapel misses, and you are compelled to be here for other reasons. But I welcome you uh, nonetheless. You know, as a Westmont parent, I always like to give you a little practical advice. So here's my practical advice for you. Get out as soon as you can. It, it has nothing to do with tuition, but just stay four years, get your degree, and go. Because Westmont, from my objective observances, appears to have an adverse impact if you stay too long. It, it, it affects you negatively in several ways. One is uh, physiological. You know, it, it changes the, the way you look. Think about your faculty. Let's put up that first uh, uh, picture. Uh, Tom Fikes. Do you know Professor Fikes? You know, they come in looking like fikes. They're cool, they're hip, and I'm not afraid to say attractive. <laughs> they stay too long, they end up looking like this. <laughs> Don't focus on it. Just get a glimpse and then turn away. Please, take that screen off. Okay. You don't want to end up like that. It, Westmont affects you physiologically. Westmont also impacts you mentally. Uh, it's my opinion that you can only learn so much. The brain only holds so much, and then you start losing stuff you learned long ago if you put in new. My example for this is Dr. Tremper Longman. How many of you have had uh, Dr. Longman as a professor? Well, well, you know, he continues to fill his brain with more biblical knowledge. He is losing stuff that he lost long ago. Those of you who have been his students will know. He's lost the letter H. <laughs> These flies are huge! 
It impacts all of humanity. He lost the, the, the letter H. All right. It also impacts you culturally. It changes the way you talk. It's not that you lose the ability or understanding of certain words. It's just that you choose not to use them anymore. For example, in the real world, when I'm in business, we have a conference. In the Westmont world, you have a colloquium. In the real world, let me say the outside world. In the outside world, you know, we have a discussion. In the Westmont world, you have a colloquy. In the outside world, we just think about things. Oh, but you at Westmont, you process them. <laughs> you, know, you know, your your faculty, they don't have friends. You listen to them talk about, you know, their, uh, the other faculty. They don't have friends. They have colleagues. <laughs> it impacts Dr. Gaty. I got a thing this last uh, uh, August. I was part of the first-year orientation, and there was a parent rep and a student rep and a, and a faculty rep. And what he meant to say was, when you're going to represent your group, just dress like the other members of your group. But, oh, no, he couldn't say it like we do in the outside world. He had to say it like you do in the Westmont world. And the memo said, dress appropriate to your constituency. <laughs> and your new provost, she, she's perhaps the worst. I heard her speak at, I heard her speak at, 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 at a meeting, and what she meant to say was, we need people here who will bring about change. The way she said it was, we need agents of contagion. <laughs> and then my favorite, you know, I used to refer to you about living on campus, but no one in Westmont ever talks about living on campus. No, 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 no. You live in community. Well, I used to deride that, but it seems to me that you do live in community because your life is so different than mine. I, I, I live in my home with uh, my wife, Cheryl, and we, we get up in the morning and before we go our separate ways, we, we stop in, in, in Matt's room to worship, which we've turned into a shrine. And, <laughs> and, and then, then I'm off to my job and, and Cheryl's off to her routine and, and we link up with different people for lunch and we're working with different people during the day and we may touch base together in the evening, but then we go to church and we're with different people. Then. We're with different people all the time. But you live in community. You eat with the same people. You study with the same people. You socialize with the same people. See the reunion cast here from Saved by the Bell. There's Zach over there. It was nice to see him in the group. Just, sorry, just distracted me for a moment. You live in community. I think that's a fair terminology. And what I would like to do today is to challenge your thinking as to what it means to live in community. Because you say it all the time. And somehow I think that maybe you lose an appreciation for what it requires. So let's talk about what does it mean for Christians to live together in community. Put up that uh, slide so we uh, have a heading uh, for that. Because UCSB students live in community. But their community needs to be, or is different from yours. Because you live as Christians in community. 
You know, the standard at UCSB would be one word, tolerance. That is their standard for living together in community. But I've never really been uh, at a place where I have found tolerance to be a very fulfilling personal virtue. And I am pleased to say that when I come to Westmont, I find out that you don't settle for that. You have ratcheted up your living in your community a, a, a few steps. I think that beyond tolerance, you live together with civility. I think that's true. You are, you are polite to each other. And I think beyond that, beyond civility, I think you live together with courtesy. There are acts of kindness that you display, not just to each other, but, but, but to strangers who come in to your community. I have tested this and used it to my advantage from time to time. When I arrive in the parking lot above the D.C., and if I've got some heavy boxes, I've got a, a files and stuff I need to bring over to, to, to Kerwood, I usually you know, wait until a group of students walk by. And I have noticed, well, first of all, I try to get some help from those people in those golf carts, but they just zip by. They're no help to anybody. So I wait for a group of students to walk by. And I have learned if I walk with a limp carrying my boxes, some student invariably says, excuse me, sir, can I help you with that? Oh, well, thank you very much. And we walk together over to Kerwood Hall. And then she hands me the boxes. And I thank her, and we go our separate ways. You live in tolerance. You live with civility to each other. You live showing courtesy to each other. But let me submit to you that that is far below the standard to which you were called to live together as Christians in community. John 13. I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. And Jesus is not talking to all people. He's talking to his disciples. And when he says love each other, he's not talking about I want you disciples to love all people. He's talking about how they should live together. And if you know anything about that first church, you know they were living together in community. He says love each other. And it's at this point you tune me out because you say, Bruce, I know all there is to know about loving each other. I hear it all the time. We know that the standard for Christians is to love. We don't need to hear anymore. Well, I think maybe you do. If I may be so bold as to submit that. Because I think what we do is we forget the standard of love. And somehow we have let society transform our thinking rather than the Word of God transforming our thinking. And we think it is acceptable to live in tolerance and civility and courtesy. But that is far from the standard of love. I think there are two things that love demands. Love demands personal involvement. Do you see, if I'm at the UCSB campus, I can be a great member of the community and just engage myself from people. I can isolate myself. 
I don't need to come in contact with anybody and I haven't violated the standards of tolerance or courtesy or civility because those do not require proactive involvement in the lives of other people. But the standard of love does require personal involvement in two ways that I'd like to show you. And the first is in reciprocal ministry. Do you know that we are all called to be ministers to each other? 1 Corinthians 12:7. A spiritual gift is given to each of us as a means of helping the entire church. You have a spiritual gift, not for your own benefit, but for the benefit of those in the entire community. Other people have spiritual gifts not for their benefit, but for your benefit. Now, we all like it when God ministers through us to others. Sometimes it's a little more difficult, though, when God uses other people to minister to us. We don't like to be on that receiving end. I don't know about you. I don't like to be. Why? Because I like to be a self-sufficient Christian. I want to be on my own. I'll be more than glad to minister to somebody else. But please, you know, I'm just uncomfortable with people ministering to me. But we live together in a a community of love that requires personal involvement, that requires this reciprocal ministry. I minister to you, you minister to me. Westmont may have one campus pastor, but ladies and gentlemen, it should have over 1,200 campus ministers. There's a second aspect to this personal involvement, and it's collective interdependence. We need to have this acknowledgement that we actually need each other. Again, from 1 Corinthians 12, verse 20, there are many parts, but only one body. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, some of the parts that seem weakest and least important are really the most necessary. Verse 27. Now, all of you together are Christ's body, and each one of you is separate and a necessary part of it. Collective interdependence, this acknowledgement that I need to minister to you and you need to minister to me, but beyond that, I actually need you in my community. It should be unacceptable, in my humble and correct opinion, that you can live all year long and have someone living three doors down the dorm from you and you not be personally engaged in their life. How can that be? If you need that person in your community, How can it be acceptable that you will just walk by them and be tolerant of them and just be civil to them and just be courteous to them but not be personally engaged in their life? How can it be acceptable that we will grab our tray at the D.C. looking for a table, trying to avoid making eye contact with just those people we know casually, kind of looking for the one table where our friends sit and yet walk by all those other people that the Scripture says you need. That the Scripture says you need to minister to them. 
that the scripture says that God may be trying to minister to you through them. I learned a great lesson about these aspects of reciprocal ministry and collective interdependence. I learned it here on the Westmont campus. It wasn't from a message that Ben gave. It wasn't from one of uh, Stan's uh, speeches. It was from the great young theologian, Matt Bickle. And I learned it several years ago. And it was in August of 1999. If you were a junior uh, here, you were probably a first-year student. And you may recall, you know, at orientation, all of the parents were there. And all of the new enrolling first-year students were there. They looked so clean and well-scrubbed. Haven't seen some of you as well-scrubbed since. And, you know, the students are nervous and the parents are a little apprehensive. And, oh, isn't Westmont beautiful? And Westmont was looking its nicest. It's always looking its nicest when parents come. (laughs) You know, and, and we had a function in Page Lounge. And then the next function, you know, was, was going to be uh, in the gym. And so all of the parents and their young, impressionable first-year students were making the trek past the library from Page, you know, down to the gym. And there was one first-year student who stood by himself on the grassy area by the library, right by this parade of parents and first-year students. Now, this young man had hair that was green and red and purple. Some of you will remember him. And he was wearing a skirt. And he stood alone in this grassy area, singing selective highlights from the sound of music. And all of the parents are aghast, thinking this is a typical Westmont student. And they're wondering if there is time to switch their students' enrollment to Biola. Do you get the mental picture? I hope so, because you're never going to see it reflected on a Westmont brochure. (laughs) So here is this individual singing these songs, and all of the parents are kind of, you know, turning their students' heads the other direction so that they not be influenced by, you know, this satanic goings-on. Well, that individual came to be known between my wife and I as Skirt Boy. And um, (laughs) driving home the four hours to Fresno, we would be worrying about Matt and thinking about him and then laughing about Skirt Boy. (laughs) And about a week into uh, Matt's first semester, you know, we were finally able to reach him at 3 o'clock in the morning uh, by phone. And we said, so how are things going? Oh, tell us about your classes. Tell us about your professors. Oh, who are you getting to meet? Well, you know, what about your roommate? And then almost as an aside, I said, and oh, how's Skirt Boy doing? And to my horror, Matt says, oh, Dad, I've met him. He's Jeremy and he's great. We're getting to be great friends. Have nothing to do with that boy or any of his kind. I'm not paying good dollars to send you to Westmont to spend time with Skirt Boy. <laughs> no, Dad, you don't understand. Jeremy is great, and he's, you know, he's teaching me how to play the drums, and, you know, and he's got a lot to offer. And da, da, da. What I didn't learn until subsequently later, and Cheryl told me that Matt had said this before, but I just hadn't listened. 
Matt was so tired with the you know, high school thing of cliques and niches and all of that, that he had committed that when he came to Westmont, he was going to find value in every person. And to my embarrassment, he found value in Skirt Boy, who I wanted nothing to do with. Because I hadn't learned the concept of collective interdependence that I need Skirt Boy in my life. And I say it, you know, Jeremy, many of you do. But there are other Skirt Boys sitting out here. And we need all of you Skirt Boys in our lives. Because, because the Scripture says we need you. And the temptation for us is to say, well, there are certain people that I don't want to have anything to do with. There are certain people that I don't need. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you this. If your love in the Westmont community lacks personal involvement, some of you are going to be isolated and others of you are going to be arrogant. Some of you are going to be isolated because no one is showing to you the love that God wants shown to you. Some of you are going to be cut off and disenfranchised because we're saying you're a skirt boy and I'm not going to have anything to do with you. Because we forget this fact that we are obligated to minister to you and that you have something to give to us. So some of you are going to be isolated without personal involvement in our love. Others of us are spiritually arrogant. Because we're saying, I don't need you, or I choose not to minister to you, or I see no value in you, skirt boy. If you lack personal involvement in your love for each other, you're going to be isolated or arrogant. May it never be so. May it be unacceptable to you not to be engaged in the lives of each other. There's another thing that love demands. You know, love demands spiritual intimacy. And this is a tough one. This is one we don't like. Because there, there's an aspect to spiritual intimacy that it's individual vulnerability. It's not only acknowledging the fact that God knows my sin. It's my telling you about it. Not the collective you, but a small group of you, at least, or at least one other of you. Spiritual uh, or individual vulnerability recognizes James 5 that says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Individual vulnerability acknowledges uh, Galatians 6.2 that says, share your burdens and your troubles with each other. But we don't like to do that. We don't like to admit to each other that we're goofing up in our Christian walk. We don't want to admit that we have these sins. Why? Because it's a bad reflection on us. You know, and then we think, well, that's a bad reflection on God. And, you know, the Christian life isn't working for me, but I wouldn't want to tell other people about it. You know, after all that Jesus has done for me, the least I can do for him is to fake a good Christian life. So I'm faking it and you're faking it. And neither of us are admitting to each other that we need help. And we're living independently in our sin without this vulnerability of sharing it with each other. 
beyond individual vulnerability, there is an aspect in spiritual intimacy of mutual accountability. It would be bad enough that I have to tell you about my sin. But then, Scripture says that you need to hold me accountable. Well, I don't want to do that. You know, I don't want you holding me accountable. And you don't want to hold me accountable. Why? Because then I might hold you accountable. So out of mutual respect for each other, we just don't engage in each other's lives. Let me tell you this. If your community lacks spiritual intimacy in its love for each other, sin is going to abound. Sin runs rampant when there is no spiritual intimacy. Why? Because there's no check against it. You're leading your secret sin and it's all by yourself and you're struggling with it and you're wondering why. Well, it's because you aren't confessing it to anyone else and you aren't seeking their help and you aren't seeking their accountability. And it's just my guess that there are those of you who are struggling with addiction to internet on the uh, internet porn. And it's just my guess that some of you are struggling with self-image and food issues that has your life completely out of balance. And it's just my guess that there are those of you who are struggling with sexual immorality that offends God every time you do it, but nonetheless you persist in it. And you put up with it. And you may even regret it, but it doesn't stop and you wonder why. And I submit to you it's because you're either hardened in your heart because it's gone on so long, or you aren't spiritually intimate with a small group of people that's going to help you deal with that problem. Where there is no spiritual intimacy in your love for each other, sin abounds. Now, why should we bother with this love thing anyway? Let's talk about this for a second. I mean, it's hard, isn't it? You know, uh, let's set aside the fact that God has you know, commanded us to do it. He's commanded us to do other things, and we can ignore that. So let's just ignore that he's commanded this for a moment. Why should we do it? It seems so hard, doesn't it? It's this burden that, that God has foistered on us. You know, and especially when you think about, you know, the people that he's called us to love. You know, let's face it. If God knew these other people like you knew them, maybe he wouldn't ask you to love them, right? That was facetious. Did that come across? I know what you're thinking. Oh, to live above with the saints will love. Oh, that will be glory. But to live below with the roommate I know? No, that's another story. <laughs> and if we add to it, you know, if we add to it personal involvement, and if we add to love spiritual intimacy, oh, that makes it now awkward and uncomfortable. And it stretches us out of our comfort zone. So why would we want to bother with loving each other? All of a sudden, you know, tolerance and civility and courtesy look pretty good. Let me give you two selfish reasons why you should love each other. Reason number one, because it enables us to understand the nature of God. You cannot know God unless you love each other. If I get the right one. 
1 John 4, 7 and 8. But we do not know, but we do know that when he comes, we will be like him. For we will see him as he really is, which, has, which is a verse that has nothing to do with the point I'm trying to make. But I actually read the wrong verse underlined on that page. Let me read the verse underlined on this page. <laughs> which is 1 John uh, uh, 3. But those who obey God's word really do love him. That is the way to know whether or not we live in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Christ did. Another verse. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is born of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God. Listen to this from First uh, Colossians 2. I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea and for many other friends who have never known me. My goal is that they will be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have full confidence because they have complete understanding of God's secret plan. I want them knit together in love so they have an understanding of God's plan. The British theologian F.F. Bruce, no relation to me, said this, in commenting on this text. The way to have full knowledge of God only happens when you cultivate love in the community. Paul was writing to the church at Colossae when he wrote that, and he was arguing against the Gnostic belief that you could rise to a higher level of Christianity based on intellectualism. And Paul is saying, no, you can't know God intellectually. The knowledge of God only comes as you love each other. And then that gives you confidence for knowing Christ and all of the treasures that are within Him. So, we should love each other because it enables us to understand the nature of God. An even more selfish reason is reason number two. We should love each other because it brings God's blessings into our lives. Let me go back to that... uh, Colossians, this time Colossians 3.18. And the most important piece of clothing you must wear is love. Love is what binds us all together in perfect harmony. One commentator said, Harmony is the revelation, the full revelation of the divine in our community. That's what harmony is when we are in the midst of each other with God in the midst of that. I think the best expression of the benefits that we receive, the blessings in our life from loving God is in Psalm 133. Psalm 133 says, How wonderful it is, how pleasant, when God's people live together in harmony. For harmony is as precious as the fragrant anointing oil that was poured over Aaron's head and ran down his beard and onto the border of his robes. Harmony is as refreshing as the dew from Mount Hermon that falls on Mount Zion. And God has declared His blessing, even life forevermore. Let me give you a little uh, cultural context uh, for this. 
Psalm 133, 1. I've tweaked it a little bit so it applies. I checked with Tremper. It fits. I haven't violated the text. How wonderful it is, how pleasant, when the Westmont community lives together in harmony. You know, this is a psalm of ascent. Three times a year, the, you know, the Jews would converge on Jerusalem. They'd come from all over. All over the world, they'd come to Jerusalem. And you always go up to Jerusalem. And as they went up to Jerusalem, they'd sing these psalms. And this is one of them. How wonderful it is, how pleasant when God's people live together in harmony. They had a family reunion, but they had a spiritual reunion too. They were celebrating the fact that they loved each other and their love for God extended to everyone. Next verse. For harmony is as precious as the fragrant anointing oil that was poured over Aaron's head and ran down his beard and onto the border of his robe. We really need cultural explanation here. This sounds like one of those Carl Jr. commercials that, it, that it's so messy, it, you know, it's unappealing. But think about it in the desert when it was so hot and your skin was so dry and sticky. You would solve that problem with olive oil. And there are, there are ancient tomb paintings that show dinner guests coming and the servant bringing a whole bowl of oil and drenching it over each guest. And that oil would refresh you. And it would moisten your skin. And it was wonderful. But beyond that, we know that harmony is as refreshing as the dew from Mount Hermon that falls on Zion. Mount, Her Mount Hermon is uh, elevation of 9,000 feet. Uh, uh, Zion, which is Jerusalem, is about 2,500 feet. So you have an elevation spread of about a mile and a half. And there is snow on Mount Hermon year-round. And when those breezes come down off Mount Hermon, it cools everything in its path. And that's what it would be like to live in harmony with God's people. Ladies and gentlemen, do not settle for tolerance and civility and courtesy. You will find them unfulfilling May Westmont's community be marked with a love that includes personal involvement in the lives of each other. May Westmont's community be marked by love that is characterized by spiritual intimacy. Then, and only then, will you begin to know the nature of God and will you, then you will experience His blessings in your life. Let's pray. Father, we commit ourselves to this challenge. May it be unacceptable for us to just be civil and courteous to each other. May we begin to understand your love by loving each other. In your name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed. God go with you.